Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, David and I talk about how his private equity firm is investing in cannabis companies, his early days in the cannabis industry, and also the lessons he has from 20 years of building and exiting companies. David brings some interesting perspectives about how big tobacco is sizing up the cannabis industry. He discusses why they're still stuck on the sidelines due to regulatory barriers and risk mitigation. We get into his views on why it's okay that we're going through the volatility in the cannabis cycle right now. As well, he shares his advice on why CEOs need to start thinking longer term in building more sustainable businesses that go beyond this boom. Now, when discussing what he likes to see in a pitch, David said, man plans and God laughs and your projections are a joke. It's part of many insights David shares here. It's great to have more insights on the cannabis industry from an investor's perspective. So enjoy this episode. On the line, I have David Wartell of Cannabis Capital. Uh, really excited to have you, David. I, from our pre-call, we had a, a pretty colorful discussion. And so uh, great to have you on. Great. Uh, excited to be on with you, Corey. What, uh, what I like to do when we start these podcasts is a bit of an elevator pitch of yourself. Uh, and also, I'd, I'd like to hear a bit about Cannabis Capital and what you're doing there. Yeah, Cannabis Capital is a private equity firm. And we make controlling investments in, uh, in businesses operating in the legal cannabis sector. And so that means things that, uh, that qualify as, uh, as hemp right now. And uh, eventually that will change into, uh, into THC as well. And I, I, there's a lot of places we can go there, especially with the, how dynamic the U.S. is right now and uh, the regulations around that. But when we're talking about controlling investments, what's, what's the bite size you're looking at? What kind of uh, investments are you looking for? We typically make between uh, $2 and $10 million uh, investments. And so we look for unique products, brands, and intellectual property where the founders have a great product and they have some traction, meaning they have some meaningful revenue, uh, usually about at least a million dollars a year. And they need a equity partner uh, and some, uh, and probably some help with executive management to really scale the, the business to the next level. And so my, my background is operating, uh, uh, larger businesses and scaling, uh, startups. And so what we do is depending on, you know, where the strengths and weaknesses are on um, their, uh, founding team or management team is we'll augment that with, uh, with people that have a real track record. Okay. I want to maybe one more question about cannabis, cannabis capital and how you how you came to get there. But I think there's a lot of interesting events that brought you to actually to starting cannabis capital. But what got you to formulate the company and, and bring your partners together? Well, it's it, cannabis is an opportunity I've been 
watching and stalking and uh, looking to get into in a big way for you know most of my adult life. As um as we've been spinning up cannabis capital, I'm also uh, an officer at a Fortune 1000 company, uh, IDT. And before that, I had uh, started uh, a couple very successful uh, software and SaaS businesses. And uh, at one point, uh, right uh, around the time I, I graduated college, I had this crazy, you know, libertarian idea uh, to cultivate uh, cannabis. And that's where I learned, you know, hands-on what it takes to, to cultivate it, what the different, uh, how to distill it, make byproducts. And what really what uh, the market looks like. And at that time, of course, the market was very different. You didn't have states where it was fully legal, but it was a really good uh, learning experience. And it always, uh, you know, kind of kept me uh, captivated. I would imagine that wasn't four or five years ago. You've got some some great uh, history and successes. So so this was a number of years ago when cannabis was quite illegal. Yeah, that was uh, almost 20 years ago. That was before recreational, before uh, medical, and uh, it, it definitely uh, was not the same uh, climate that it was uh, then. And so when you look at the cannabis sector now, um, you know, I, I got out of that business and went on to go start software companies. And, and of course, some people stayed in and some of the, you know, very legal operators now that are licensed, uh, they stayed in it. And so it when I talk to entrepreneurs and founders in the sector, it's something that we can really uh, relate to. And, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for people to have a history and stories where, you know, friends and family aren't allowed to come over to their house, right? Because they have to keep, you know, their business secret. And a lot of, a lot of people would never understand that kind of thing. Of course, of course. Now, I mean, that's, that's changed so much, but we're still in, in the wild west of, of the cannabis space. I mean, obviously, from 20 years ago, the industry's changed. But how is it changing now? And where are you starting to see opportunities? Well, it's interesting that, you know, you said it's changed so much. But for the people who uh, have been operating in that in that sector for a long time, it hasn't changed that fast for them. They're still adjusting. So, for example, I was talking to a really interesting company. Uh, they make a, uh, a cannabis cigar shell a really unique product. And when I first started talking to the founder of the company, even though what he's doing is legal, he, 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 was, he operated, uh, he's a business doing a million in revenue operating basically out of his house. And he's afraid to have me over to his house. Um, there really was no reason for it, but that's just the, the habit that comes out of people in that sector uh, for, for so many years. And it's also, I think, what inhibits you know, the industry you know, from really taking off because, you know, a lot of the people who operate in it don't have experience scaling uh, a business and raising money and operating a, a larger business. And there's also a number of people uh, who do have that track record that, you know, are kind of sitting on, uh, on the sidelines. Well, you definitely see a lot of companies that are, that are making, making moves have been these, these partnerships of those who understand the world of finance and business growth and development and those who understand cannabis in in you know such a deep way they've got 10 or 20 years of experience with it and that seems to be a real winning combination yeah and there's often a, a divide you know so uh, for example about a month ago I, I sat in at the uh at the otc market did a investor's day uh for some of the the pink sheet companies in cannabis 
and you know you listen to the company presentations and it's company after company and and basically you could sum it up as we grow pot mm-hmm. um but <laughs> you know there's there's not much other than that uh you know going on for a lot of these businesses and so- i certainly understand the excitement and, and attraction uh of of doing that but um you know after i started my first software company r1 soft I had uh, exited that business successfully. And then, um, you know, even though I was living in Houston, I actually uh, financed and set up a medical grow in, in Michigan when they first had uh, legal medical cannabis. And at the time, I watched the, the market change drastically overnight. And in, in the course of a year, you know, the wholesale price of flour went from over $4,000 a pound you know, down to under 2000. And that, that really was a big learning experience for me because it took what was a, a very, potentially a very profitable business and turned it to a little more than breaking uh, overnight. And, you know, you've seen, you know, you can see that happen in all the states. And, and really, I think the industry is, is betting on regulations and licensing, you know, creating a, a a moat around the businesses or creating a, a little bit of a, a monopoly. Hmm. Man, so many so many paths we can go, and I think w- what I want to go go at first is is to refer to, uh, for example, you went to the OTC uh, Markets Day. Uh, having been through a number of startups yourself and seen successful exits, you've been through the rounds of financing. You've engaged investors, and uh, you're now working with a public company on, a, at an executive level. What what advice do you have for those companies who are listed, who are out there looking to differentiate themselves? That's ultimately one of the the core purposes of this podcast. You know, yeah, I, I think it's uh, you know there's there's a, a couple of different ways uh, you know to play it, and I think like any market, there's a very uh, a phase where there's a lot of excitement and euphoria, and it's a bit of a bubble. I mean. And I think we're, we're probably in that with cannabis. You know, if you, if you live through the dot com bubble, we're in kind of the pet, the pet dot com phase mm-hmm. where you can throw cannabis on anything and go raise money with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and people just throw money at it as long as it has the word cannabis. And, and I know for people out there who are trying to raise money for their, their cannabis deal, it's not that easy, but compared to other businesses, it's, it's almost mm-hmm. that easy. And eventually, you know, a lot of money can be made if, if you exit at the right time. And I think that's fabulous. But, you know, I think at some point, like all industries, that bubble pops and people kind of get down, uh, back down to earth and focus on businesses that really, you know, generate, uh, generate money and, and value for investors. And that, uh, that, that means either, you know, cash flow or very, very rapid revenue growth. And a lot of the, the, the businesses out there, you know, you'll see have these wild valuation, 50, sometimes 100 times revenue. Um, it's it's going to be hard for them to live up to those expectations. But that's okay. It's all very normal. And so I would think unless you've got a really quick path to get to a pile of money, it, it's probably best to think, you know, very long term and to, to have a sustainable business that uh, that prints money. Interesting. I mean, it's, it seems that, um, you know, in building a company or a, especially a public early stage public company, it's either growth or yield. You're either, you know, just knocking over your growth numbers or you're, you're pushing money back to the shareholders. And that's uh, what's going to get you, get you some true recognition for the long term. 
if if I was to plant you in the the driver's seat of a an early stage cannabis company right now, what would you do? I mean, knowing that that we're at this stage in the industry, I mean, it's you know, it's not quite. I don't think it's quite the dot the the dot bomb era, and there's there's some turmoil and there's starting to be some blood in the streets. What would you do as a CEO of a, a cannabis company right now? Where would you be looking? Well, I I think what we're what the way we're looking at in cannabis capital that's interesting is is we're not interested in in the cultivation. Um, we're really not that excited about the retail because you know we expect uh, eventually it will be legal to import that, and you know cultivators in Latin America uh, or you know overseas wherever are going to do it at a much lower cost that can be done domestically. And I think what is uh, probably most valuable is owning uh, uh, sales and sales channels. So perhaps, you know, large chains of, of retailers could be interesting and particularly distribution where you have the ability to put products into retailers. You know, so yesterday I, I went to, you know, I was in Manhattan and there was this, um, this exhibit of consumer and wellness and beauty products. And really, it's, it's manufacturers trying to con, uh, connect with retailers. And it was, it was interesting because the whole show was almost all about CBD products. And that's right. what everybody's excited about. And I think there's a good reason to be excited about it. But when you talk to the manufacturers, they're making really interesting products. And what they don't have yet is, is, uh, is sales and, and distribution. But of course, you know, the, the smart ones are, are rapidly focusing on that. And so I think, you know, you can look at some companies and they're in a land grab right now to acquire licenses for retail and cultivation. Um, I, I don't think long term that's uh, that's probably the, the place to be. I think, uh, you know, acquiring relationships and customers uh, to have a, a massive sales channel that you can put product in is probably uh, the most important. Good points. I, I, I appreciate that. And you can see. Uh you know, those investing in, in opening up the pipelines of, of being able to move product versus just being able to create more of a commodity is, is, um, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, I mean, cannabis flower itself is basically a commodity already. It used to be at some point, you know, maybe still 15, 20 years ago, a particular strain of, of cannabis flower would get people excited and people would seek it out. And the cultivators would seek out that strain from the the, the, the breeder of the seeds. Now, it, it, nobody cares. And so there, there has to be ways to build brand and differentiate and formulate products that are meaningful to the consumer besides it's just pop. And, you know, for example, if you look at the, the tobacco industry, you know, it's not a, it's not a stretch to assume at some point the, the government will eventually regulate advertising much as they do with tobacco. I mean, already it's not, a, I don't think it's necessarily directly uh, mandated by the government, but Google won't let you advertise with uh, the keyword CBD. And so right now the companies that build brands and build, you know, brand identity with the consumer uh, are going to be in a very good position uh, as it goes into being more regulated and federally legal. That, that actually brings me to another question. And, from doing some research on uh, your website there and how you're positioning cannabis capital, uh, you make reference and, or it might've been in our, our earlier call to 
uh, big tobacco and pharmaceutical and, and being forced to sit on the sidelines uh, with as regulations start to mature and come through. Do you have any predictions there? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, cannabis capital has some advisors uh, that come uh, from very senior executive positions at, at the, the largest tobacco companies. And all they talk about in the halls of big tobacco is cannabis. Uh, and, uh, and they've been researching it, coming up with plans, ideas to formulate products, depending on the company, you know, for the last 10 to 20 years. And what once, uh, in the, in the late nineties, all these big lawsuits hit for big tobacco and, you know, those businesses started looking at, okay, what's our future? And it became clear to them that cannabis has is, but they've been sitting on the sidelines because from their point of view, you know, look, if I've got, you know, 20 or, or $50 billion in revenue, I, I want to be very careful that I don't jeopardize that, that revenue stream uh, by doing something that could potentially get my stock delisted or maybe is not regulated. Even with CBD after the farm bill, it, you could take the position it's clearly federally legal. A lot of the bigger companies are still continuing to sit on the sidelines. There's just been some press recently that they're now trying to to press the FDA to actually clarify the regulations because when you're in the position of having a giant revenue and cash flow stream and shareholders are responsible to, it, you tend to play it safe and not jeopardize that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you, you're seeing some pressure and some lobbying there to, to push the FDA for more clarification and that ultimately being another step towards federal legalization. Absolutely, because every existing product out there right now, right, they want to get CBD, they want to into some formulation of their product, they're just dying to because there's so much excitement about it. But, you know, there's a lot of hesitancy, because they don't want to take the, the, the chance of, uh, of getting in trouble. You saw, you saw a similar thing happen with the vaping devices, uh, mm. you know, with, uh, with nicotine vaping. Right. So, so a right. lot of startups really captured the whole vaping industry and big tobacco kind of, for the most part, stayed out of it because similar to CBD, vaping was technically legal, but there was a lot of uncertain regulation. By it. I gotcha. Now, to, to shift gears here, I, I, uh, I wanted to, to step back into your previous careers of, to discuss some of the the stories you have from building those companies and financing those companies along the way if you needed to, and then ultimately what the exits looked like and what those negotiations were. Because, I mean, that's a, that's a huge part of, of, of every company's journey. So what were those? Um, R1 was one of your companies there, and what was the story of that? Yeah, so with, with R1 Soft, you know, uh, at the time I was in my, uh, my early 20s, I was uh, growing weed uh, in Detroit. And I had the idea that, well, look, I've been doing this successfully. It's time to graduate from a house to an industrial space in cannabis cultivation. It, it was definitely, uh, you know, kind of a, a naive thing to do uh, in youth. But as they say, naivety in youth is not a structural deficit. But um, <laughs> I also had an idea to start a, uh, a backup software company. Uh, when I was going to college, I, I had a dial-up internet and hosting business. And the backup products at the time were made to do nightly tape backups for big businesses. And at the, you know, the internet was exploding servers were on all the time and, and there was no backup product to address that. 
and so I, I, I had this idea to solve that problem. And, you know, I didn't have, uh, you know, the same kind of track record I have now. So to bootstrap that business, I, I made a list of who the top three potential customers would be. And at the time, they were Vario, Rackspace in San Antonio, Texas, and their scrappy competitor, Rackshack in Houston, which is now, uh, after a couple acquisitions, part of IBM. Hmm. And I, I interviewed with all three, and I ended up getting a job at Rackshack in Houston reporting uh, to the founders of the, the company to run their network and, you know, worked there for about a year. And at night, uh, coded, uh, uh, wrote software to, to, to solve this backup problem, uh, which, you know, required a lot of low-level systems, Linux programming at the time. And eventually, you know, I went to the founders of this business and told them what I was doing and was able to sell them, you know, $500,000 of software uh, on a prototype. And that's how I bootstrap that business. Interesting. What was that? I mean, that was quite early on and, and you grew from there. But with, with every company growing, there has to be some, some steep negotiations, tough negotiations that are happening or that have happened. Uh, and those negotiations. Yeah, of course. You know, for, for example, in, in, yeah, in, in that business, you know, my pitch to uh, the founders uh, of that business was, you know, make an investment. And they said, look, you don't have a, a track record. We're not comfortable making an investment, but we'll agree to license the software from you in, in tranches, uh, contingent on you delivering the software. Uh, and it wasn't the deal I was looking for, but that allowed me to get an office, you know, hire six or seven people and build a team and, and then deliver the software. And then I was able to take it to market and sell it to all their competitors. Awesome. And, and in future businesses, you've gone on and, and, um, when it comes to, to financing, do you have any, any stories there that are valuable to the audience of, of things that you, you did well or things that you could have done better? You know, one thing I, I've learned uh, over, you know, doing transactions is, you know, to try to have a, a longer term perspective. And I, I also see it kind of now because my perspective changed uh, you know, there's a, there was a startup called Store Reduce. They exited, uh, in, in August of 2018 to Pure Storage. And, and I was an advisor to the, to the CEO to, to help them grow the company and through that transit, that transition. And, you know, I thought they sold their business way too soon. Um, but they were just kind of happy because it was their first startup and they had been, you know, toiling so hard at it. They just wanted to, you know, to get the kind of get the money and run. And so I think, you know, especially for people who are, uh, you know, for first time founders, you know, try to have a long term uh, perspective, you know, every industry, and every business has a life cycle. And ideally, you want to sell your business when you're, you know, when those two things are aligned, but it almost never happens. You know, when the business is at its peak, uh, growing very mature, and also when the industry or sector is at the same peak. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it's best to have a have a long term perspective. Um, a business who's growing fast can be and, and losing money can always be restructured to make money. And uh, cash flow is always uh, a, a positive uh, thing and a good place to to go take on new challenges. Now, for companies approaching you who in the cannabis space, I mean, we you got a couple of those the right timing. Perhaps they have the growth and. Uh, and the industry just continues to wind up, even if we've got some inflated valuations. 
How should companies approach you? Like most, you know, venture capital or, or private equity firms, your inbox is, is jam-packed every day with, uh, with pitch decks and offers to, to have you invest in, and 98, you know, 99.9% are, are not interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, but, but we do look at them. And I think, uh, you know, what we're looking for is, you know, products and intellectual property and things that have, uh, that have revenue and particularly products that we can scale in, in all, all 50 states. So that's, that's the criteria you're at. Is there a best way to approach it to deliver that message to, to leave it, leave the right impression? And what's that, that process like? A lot of, of guests that I've uh, interviewed, when asked that, they, they definitely say, you know, keep time on your side. But what, what, would, what works for you? Yeah, I think that's, that's good advice. Um, it, it, does take, uh, it does take time uh, to raise money. And, you know, that, that process for us, once we see that uh, there's an opportunity that fits our criteria, you know, we'll, we'll start talking uh, to the founder and, and learning more about their business. And uh, if, if we continue to uh, like what we hear uh, and, uh, and we, get, we see the right financial information, then, you know, we'll start, uh, we'll start having a discussion about how we can partner and, and what that might look like. And, you know, really, we're looking for, for people that have a great product that want to continue to, uh, to innovate with some help to, to scale the business. I gotcha. And then, you know, from that two to $10 million investment, as I understand, taking a controlling interest, these, these founders or the, the management teams there would be taking some money off the table, I imagine. Um, what, is, what, are the, what do the deals look like? I mean, what is an optimal deal that you're able to put some money in, into the, the pockets of them for their hard work and for proving out a, a solid business? But then how do you keep them incentivized? And how do you structure a deal that's going to work for both sides? Yeah, I mean, really, uh, it, and a bit of it's unique to the space in, uh, in cannabis because it's, it's kind of the wild west out there and, and you've got a lot of uh, really innovative but also inexperienced, you know, founders and management. You know, our, the kind of deals we do, you know, we'll get, you know, something more than, than 50% into the company. And we're happy to have, you know, the, the founding team uh, have all the rest so that they're incented to, uh, to continue to grow. And what I find a lot of time with, uh, with founders is they've been, you know, struggling for years to get it off the ground to where it is. And they're, they're anxious to, uh, to de-risk themselves a little bit and, you know, get paid for all the hard work they've, they've done. And I think that's a, that's a smart thing to do. But they also uh, see the growth potential with help. And so they want to have a bet on the upside. And, and we're happy to, uh, to have them, have, you know, have them be partnered with us in that way. And then I would imagine you're taking, or you put a board positions in place and, and really it sounds like somewhat, you know, remain, they would remain with the autonomy, but going down a path of continuing doing what they're doing. Yeah, it, it really depends uh, on, uh, on the founding team and where they need help with. Sometimes they've, 
they've got a great product, they're very innovative, they know how to, to manufacture and scale the manufacture, but they need capital and they need help with, uh, with sales. You know, that's a, that's a, a common uh, pattern uh, that you find. And it's not only in, in cannabis, this happens, you know, of course, uh, in, in the software business as well. And in the software, it's, it, it's called growth equity. And usually it's at companies that have more scale than a million dollars, but the cannabis industry is so young. A million dollars in, in revenue is uh, is a lot more than some other industries. It's something you know when when looking and projecting the future there. Especially you mentioned the cannabis industry being so young. When getting in front of, of people like yourself, it's it's almost comical to put forward projections and say, "Hey, we're going to do this." How do you approach that? And how do you put some some reality to people's projections, especially in an industry that is is so new? Yeah, I, I mean, look, and it's not just cannabis. It's I mean, anybody who's got a very early stage company that that does not have this, you know, if you've got a company that let's say it's you know twenty, thirty million in revenue and it's growing fifty percent a year and it's been doing it quarter after quarter after quarter, sure, I think the the, the projections and, and the budget for growth becomes pretty meaningful. But when you have a really early stage business and you see these wild projections i mean they're a, honestly they're a total waste of time and, and they're complete uh you know fantasy land <laughs> i do think it's a useful exercise to come up with them because it's good to think through the business and think you know what your actual costs are going to be like as you scale the business and how much cash you're going to burn to build the kind of things you think you need to 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 scale the business and that's a good thought exercise but as far as drawing any conclusions or meaning to the numbers, it, they're meaningless. You know, it, man plans and, and God laughs, and and those projections are, are a joke. <laughs> that's a that's a great quote, man. I think I might quote you on that. I think it was uh, was it uh, General Patton that said uh, a uh, a mediocre plan uh, violently executed is better than a perfect plan that goes nowhere. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think, um, you know, to, to, to leave people with the idea that, uh, you know, the most important thing is to operate from a place of no fear and be absolutely uh, very transparent and direct with uh, who you are, and people will uh, appreciate that. And that's not always, uh, that's not always an easy thing to do. You know, so every, you know, if you look at, uh, investments in startup companies. Most people who make those investments, whether they're venture capitalists or angel investors, they don't just make those investments for the return. They like looking at deals. They like talking to founders. They like picking the opportunities. And you know, the more that you can, you know, build a relationship, uh, the the better off you'll be. What else can you can you say about that? And and not to to push you on the point, but is there is there something deeper there that wouldn't meet the eye kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of what you look for in successful management teams is high-performance people. And, you know, high-performance people tend to speak, you know, very directly, very open, and, uh, and kind of, uh, you know, not, not beat around the bush. Uh, you know, they're the kind of people that can, you know, as they say, I, there's a phrase I learned in Texas and that's, uh, you know, not be afraid to put the turd on the table because <laughs> and another way to, to put that is to be, you know, a realist and be very real and honest with yourself and, 
you know, with your partners about where you're at and where your business is, because that's the only way to, you know, to really grow it and, and excel is to be honest about where you're at. And, and the best and the best way to do that with a business is to look at uh, is, is to look at the financial statement. And that that is always your you know report card uh, for a business to be to be honest with yourself. And it doesn't matter what exciting new partnership deal you announce. It, it means nothing if the results are not in the financial statement. Excellent. So in thinking through this and, and, and uh, hearing your comments here, something else came up and perhaps it's a little disjointed from uh, from where we're at. But, you know, what lessons do you have um, around financing and building their business or, you know, what kind of advice do you have there? I would say that uh, just to keep in mind when they look at other successful business leaders, you know, whether, you know, it was a Steve Jobs or the Bill Gates and he looks so friendly sitting there in his, uh, his sweater, he realized that uh, their, their public persona is not necessarily who they, how they operate when they're conducting business and, and doing deals and that these people are absolutely killers and uh, and business is warfare and, and you should operate the same. Can you, can you expand on that? The business being warfare? Because I, I really like the analogy. I mean, it's it's empire building, but can you expand on that? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, I don't think anybody should ever do anything to, uh, to, to break the law. And within the law, you should do everything possible to make your business successful. And, and in fact, if you have a good product and you really believe in your product or service, it is your duty to do everything possible to give, to give the opportunity to benefit from that product or service to every client or potential client or, or, or consumer, uh, you know, across the, the world. You'll have lots of, you know, obstacles to overcome with that. And, and you should treat it uh, as warfare and be ruthless, and they call it competition uh, for a reason. <laughs> you know, I, I sometimes think uh, perhaps some of us Canadians are a little too nice. It is sound advice. Competition means full on. It doesn't mean friendly. It, that's right. And, you know, honestly, I, I don't know if really people uh, in, in the States are, are that much tougher than, than the Canadians. I'm not even sure that's true. In fact, that's a lesson I learned uh, the hard way uh, through my, uh, through my career. And, uh, and, and that is you don't, uh, you don't become successful by, uh, by being a nice guy. Thanks for that. For perhaps a, a broader, um, a broader outlook from your experience and having been in the trenches uh, uh, in building companies, and now looking at an industry that's growing, what's, what's your broad outlook on the cannabis industry? Where are we going to be in 10 years? You know, I, I think in 10 years, uh, there's going to be, uh, if, you, if you look at the cannabis uh, industry, you have a few different customer personas. So, you know, one persona is the person that has been, you know, uh, smoking and consuming cannabis uh, regularly, uh, long before the, the laws change. And that person's going to tend to, you know, purchase and consume cannabis in the same way they always have. I think, uh, you also have a, a another persona that tends to be, uh, older, retired, or soon will be retired. And a lot of those people are now really interested in exploring cannabis but they're more interested in, in uh, cannabinoids and not TH, besides THC uh, for, for medical benefits uh, or, you know, support uh, for their health, as they say. 
And I think it's also likely to expect that Generation Z will be a very large consumer of cannabis. And and one thing to keep in mind, too, is that right now we're seeing one cannabinoid be particularly popular, and that's CBD. Uh, but there's many more, and there's a lot more uh, uh, to explore in benefits and products uh, in cannabis uh, that's that's going to be coming out in the coming years. I appreciate that, and and um, I mean it's 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 a fascinating industry and, and so young, but it's uh, we're going to see where it ends up. So thank you very much. With cannabis capital and the work you're doing there for for the listeners, how can they get in touch with you or follow the work you're doing? Sure, just go to our website cannabiscapital.bc. Excellent. Well, David, I really want to thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And thank you for your insights. Thanks for having me on, Corey. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.